Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone, this is Richard. In just about a week's time, this year's CD Expo will be taking place in Denver, Colorado, and my friend and co-host Adam Justice will be there. In anticipation of that show, which caters to home technology professionals, we thought we'd spend some time examining the professional and DIY smart home markets. How are they different? Who do they serve? And what trends have we seen as both markets evolve and smart home tech becomes more mainstream? Or has it? Is it possible that this DIY thing isn't the answer for the general consumer? We spot around that somewhat controversial idea as well. We hope you enjoy our discussion. Justice from ConnectSense, and welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Richard Gunther, from the Digital Media Zone. And today, in anticipation for the um, upcoming Cedia Expo, we're going to examine the state of both DIY and professionally installed smart home markets. But before we get into the smart home talk, I have a question for Richard to open the show. So, Richard, what is your favorite vacation spot? This is perfect timing, because I'm going on vacation soon. So I love this question. I, um, I'm i not going to answer with where I'm going, though. And where I say may surprise most people if you don't know me. My favorite vacation place, and I've been there half a dozen times, is Reykjavik, Iceland. Nice. Yeah. You know, I think it was about maybe 15 years ago or so where suddenly we had this dearth of, I think dearth is the right word, glut. We had this um, like abundance, enormous amount of travel content because we had the travel channel, we had discovery, we had all of these new cable networks that were looking for content. And they started publishing stuff about all these different places that most people didn't know about. And one of the kind of hidden gems that wasn't as popular as it has uh, since become in the last decade or so was Iceland. And so we started looking into it. And actually, my 40th birthday present ended up being a trip for us to Iceland. And so um, actually, you know, what? I got that wrong. My 40th birthday present for Edward was a trip for us to Iceland. My birthday present was a trip to Disney in Paris because, you know, me and Disney, it's a thing. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, I highly recommend it to anybody that has not been to Reykjavik. And people think, oh, Iceland, it's going to be crazy cold. 
it's not crazy cold. I mean, I wouldn't recommend going there in January if you don't like cold weather, but it's fairly temperate. It's kind of more along the lines of temperatures that you might see in upstate New York and places like that. So it's something that I highly recommend. And they're high enough in, uh, high enough in, in the, uh, on the globe. Why do I not have words working today? That if you go during the summer, you get elongated days where it never fully gets dark. And if you go during the winter, you have elongated nights where you only have like short periods of daylight, which is kind of interesting if you've never traveled to a place like that. Yeah, I believe it is the northernmost capital city in the world. I would believe that. And uh, I had the chance to go last November. I went with an entrepreneur's group I'm a part of, and that was my first time going. Yeah, you're totally right that it's it's pretty weird if you're not used to those super long days or nights uh, to, you know, about three o'clock, it starts getting dark. Um, it's just <laughs> really, really odd and, and not something you're used to. But I totally agree. I had never been. It wasn't really on my radar. And I absolutely loved it. I, I thought it was great. And I would love to go back. Well, and so the big thing for me is I, we ended up getting married there after going the first time uh, decided that, hey, that would be a great trip a great place for a destination wedding and had 20 friends come over and go to Reykjavik, all of them for the first time and did a tour around Iceland and stuff like that. People loved it so much that many of the folks that went with us have gone back since they, they it ended up being something that they wanted to share with their larger family, their kids, stuff like that. So Highly recommend it. I, I think one of the things that I thought was interesting about it is tourism is a huge part of Iceland's economy. And, you know, they made this decision, you know, many years ago that it was going to be a focus for them and kind mm -hmm. of the growth of their economy. So their uh, their airline is actually ran by the government. And one of their strategies is they have these super cheap flights to get there. And they even have this concept where, like, let's say you're flying to somewhere else in Europe, uh, you know, Paris, Germany, the UK, you can stop over in Iceland and you still get this cheap fare, but you have to stay at least one night in Iceland. So this whole concept of they're trying to get you to come to Iceland, spend money, and they do lots of things to try to get you to spend money. It's pretty unique. Oh, yeah. Airport and things like that. I've never been in an airport where you go through security and exit into the gift shop. <laughs> yes, you do indeed. <laughs> so uh, it, it's a unique experience, but I, I really enjoyed it too. So I, I will second your recommendation. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, I, um, I'm, I'm glad that we had that question and I bet people were surprised. I didn't say Disney. There you go. You got to switch it up every once in a while. <laughs> So if you want to submit a question for us to open the show, uh, send us a question on Twitter with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard, and then you might see your show, your question show up on a, a future episode. All right. Well, we're going to start this discussion off um, with some follow-up from past discussions that we've had. And we've talked about iOS 13 in the past. Adam, you and I are both running iOS 13 betas in anticipation of the upcoming release. 
How's that going for you? I don't know how brave you are, but I'm only running this beta on my iPad. Yeah, me too. For yeah, for whatever reason this year, I think there's just way more changes. But you know, the various people that have been covering this, you know, the message has been stay away, stay away, <laughs> and so you know, just now I don't know what beta we're on. Um, six, seven, eight, something like that. Just a, a beta or two ago, I, I finally pulled the trigger and put it on my iPad. So yeah, I mean, so far I'm liking it. I've done a little bit of stuff in HomeKit, but actually that kind of brings to the next point. One of the huge things that I was super excited about was all this new automations and shortcuts, and that got pulled out in a previous beta. And so I think with kind of some of the stuff being a little bit rocky, some things have been pushed out and actually something that happened this week was they dropped the beta of 13.1. Yeah, I don't get this at all. I just don't get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it just has to be that that things, you know, they're, they're lopping off features and pushing them out. And I think this is kind of be the kind of the new normal of, of Apple stuff that, um, you know, everything we see at WWDC isn't necessarily going to be there on day one in September when the new OS ships. Um, there was some stuff last year that sh didn't ship in 12, like the, the group FaceTime stuff. Unfortunately, one of the things we're excited about, it looks like it's going to be in 13.1. How far off that is uh, to be to be determined. Um, so the automation shortcut stuff um, will be in there. But the other thing that, that was just announced was also some new icons for uh, HomeKit as well. So uh, I'll throw something in the show notes. Uh, there was a great write-up on HomeKit Hero, uh, who's been doing a great job of, of covering all the betas and what changes in, in HomeKit um, about kind of all the all the different new icons and, and things that are new in this new beta. So, yeah. So I think, you know, we just wanted to mention that we are uh, keeping an eye on this. And, you know, I know that you and I really wanted to cover this in depth in a future episode. So uh, we might have a little bit more time because... <laughs> Some of yeah. the stuff may not drop until 13.1. Yeah, and and I, I think, you know, your your point about shortcuts is probably the biggest reason that we're seeing this incremental release. It was clear with how unprepared or or unpolished the shortcut automations were in the 13 betas that we were testing that they had a lot of work to do. And when they pulled it out, I think the writing was kind of on the wall that, okay, this is not going to be ready for premiere day. And so I'm glad, quite frankly, right? Like I'm glad they've taken the opportunity to pull it out and do it right. But then that suggests that, okay, by making 13.1 available to us, they really need developers and, and even consumers who go in the, and get the betas when they're available to them to really bang on this. Cause there's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot in general for 13 for people to be testing anyways. So, you know, I know we're focused on getting a few um, things in our app ready and, and, you know, stuff that are kind of musts for day one of, of iOS 13. So more time is always good. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for them taking more time to let these things bake and do it right rather than release something that's really buggy on day one. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. 
Well, the other thing to follow up on was we talked about the Nest Hub Max or the Google Nest Hub Max, depending on how many words you want to say, in a past episode. And we have a real release date that's right around the corner. It's going to be out on September 9th now. If you remember, this is the larger version of the Nest Hub, formerly known as the Google Home Hub. This one is 10 inches. It's more expensive. It's 229. It has a camera on it, I believe with a shutter, if I remember correctly. I think they're doing that right on this one. I don't remember uh, exactly. It's a, it's a Nest Cam, or that's how they're branding it, that it's a Nest Cam built in. Okay. And as all other Nest Cam products, which they had kind of recently announced, I would expect that this one is going to have a light on the camera that is not going to be configurable. That light will always be on when the camera is running. Yep. Yeah, I saw that in some of their press stuff that they were showing off that that, that is the case. So that's nice to have and, and always a good indicator to know when somebody is watching on the other side. You know, it's funny. I kind of wish my tablet had an indicator when the camera was on. And it's, I, I'm a, I'm a believer in shutters. I don't like the fact that all these different devices have cameras. And in many cases, you don't necessarily know when they're on. And yep, I'm one of those people that has a little black sticky thing over the cameras on my devices because I just don't trust them. I don't trust the devices to properly expose when an application is using the camera. And I don't trust developers to not use it inappropriately. Yeah. Sad, but you know, I watch too much black mirror. I think <laughs> I've stayed away. So there you go. That's why I'm more <laughs> trusting still. All right. So uh, for our first segment, we wanted to dive into a little bit about the DIY and professional smart home segments. So, and Richard, do you want to talk about kind of how you define each of these? Well, yeah, you know, you mentioned Cedia earlier, and you're going to be going to Cedia. I expect in our next episode, we'll spend a good amount of time talking about that. But Cedia is a show that historically has targeted the custom installer space, the pro space. So if you want a smart home, but you just want to call someone up and throw money at them and say, make my home smart. And like an architect or like an interior designer, someone would come out, find out what your needs are, work with you to figure out a solution that works within your budget and that um, adds value to your home for you. And they go ahead and install it and configure it and all that. That's a very different type of smart home experience than we see evolving now and that I typically cover, which is the DIY space where you walk into your Home Depot or your Lowe's or your Best Buy or you go onto Amazon or smarthome.com and you just buy stuff and set it all up yourself. And there's a certain amount of, I guess, uh, technical proficiency that you needed to have in the past. That market had been typically kind of isolated to hobbyists. Now it's become a little bit more popularized, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next segment, because I don't think that market has grown as much as all the pundits had been predicting year after year after year after year. So 
they're they're really very different spaces, and and I think it's interesting to look at the two because there are benefits to each segment. There are reasons for supporting each segment as a company or as a manufacturer. There are reasons the consumers might look at one way or the other. And, you know, I've always been a DIY guy just because I like getting my hands dirty. Not too dirty. I'm not throwing up raspberry pies to run stuff in my house, but I, I prefer something that I have the ability to control. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think we're similar in that respect. I, I'm pretty similar. I want that level of control and and just kind of the flexibility that comes from being able to add point solutions, you know, here and there. You know, I definitely think there's a there's a place for the, you know, the professional stuff. And, you know, I know, you know, for sure one of my dream projects that I plan on doing at some point when I redo my basement is I want to do a kick home theater. And, you know, that may be something that where I start to consider some of these professional solutions and, and some of the things that come with it. I think that's a really good point too, right? Home theater was one of the areas where custom seemed to be the way to do it. It was, you know, you've always been able to buy your own TV and set it up and everything like that. But custom installers offered that ability to create a theater experience in your home, a a custom theater solution where you had a dedicated room or a media space or something like that. And that was very different than, say, setting up your big screen in the family room. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but that comes at a price tag for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Right. So, you know, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm only spending $50 here and $100 there and $250 there or whatever. That does add up. Right. Like, I think we've seen multiple uh, uh, articles in the press about how, you know, the DIY smart home isn't as cheap as you think it is once you add everything up. It's just that you're spending it over time as you need things that add value to your home or your life experience. Whereas if you have a custom installer come in, you're starting at four figures. And in all likelihood, unless you're just having them come in and automate one thing, you're probably starting at mid four figures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I think also there's some pretty different technology areas that that each segment uses you know on the diy side pretty common to stick to uh you know wi-fi ble there's some other stuff proprietary technologies hubs here and there you know example great example would be like lutron stuff runs a proprietary wireless network but they still have a hub but i would still consider that diy yeah, absolutely. And Insteon is probably very, you know, a very similar model. They have a proprietary radio that then uses its own bridge and and hub to control all that stuff. But you do see some crossover like Z-Wave and Zigbee, I think, are technologies that are used heavily in both spaces. 
Z-Wave, probably more so in the pro space. Right. Yeah, I was going to mention Zigbee, too. I mean, obviously heavily used in, in stuff like uh, Philips Hue um, and things like that, which definitely plays in the in the DIY space. But there's certainly a lot of Zigbee stuff in, in the pro space as well. You know, one of the things that I love in the pro space and that I wish we could see more of in the DIY space is the use of power over Ethernet. This is this is such good technology and the ability to have one less wire just makes so much sense. And I know that it's not for every consumer because not everybody is going to have Ethernet wiring throughout their home or would be able to pull it themselves or something like that. But the ability to have your power go over the Ethernet cable that is also potentially sending a signal or just or just providing a power because there's already Ethernet infrastructure in your home is a big win, I think, in uh, in, in a lot of products. And I have actually power over Ethernet to my Wi-Fi uh, access points. Arguably, though, I'm using Unify, and that's a product that is used pretty heavily in the pro space. Yeah, that's what we run in our office. We also do PoE for all our phones and stuff like that. And I do agree, it's super nice to just run one cable to things and not have to worry about the power supply and the data connection. Now, I I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is, you know, it seems like companies straddle both markets a little bit. Sometimes you see some that pick one or the other, but I'm seeing more and more that companies support, and by companies, I mean companies that either provide services or that make products, uh, supporting one, the other, or both, right? Those are the options. And you might even throw home builders in there as a as kind of a, a third or fourth option, really, because that's a bit of a hybrid situation. You're a company, or you, you, you uh, run a company that actually does support both, right? You have services that support the Moen product. That's not something that you're going to buy and install in the shower yourself. Right. Yeah. And and this is something we're thinking a lot about as we are working to get our in-wall outlet product out in the market. So, you know, I think there's a segment of people that are going to use that as a DIY, install it themselves, or, or maybe just hire an electrician to do the electrical work. But I would still consider that a, a DIY type thing. And, you know, we're we're going to have a booth at CDS. So we're certainly looking for people in that space to partner with to, um, you know, help sell that product and, and, you know, put it out there. So I think there is definitely a place for people to support both markets. And I think that's... I think there's definitely some old school CDF folks that are like, you know, no, no, no. If this is a DIY product, I'm not going to touch it. And there's others that are being a little bit more open-minded and they'll take good products from anywhere in the segment. And I think some of that has come from some of these hero devices that have been really successful and have opened the doors for this. So these are things like Ring um, and stuff like that, Uh, maybe even devices like Eero that, you know, those customers are starting to ask for those things. 
And so pros, you know, had to do something about it and, and start servicing those markets as well. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny. One of the things that I've been talking about for the last couple of times that I attended Cedia was how you are seeing this overlap. And I've called it convergence before. I don't know if that's really the right term because in some ways we, I think overlap is a better way of putting it because you still have discrete portions of these segments, but at the same time, there's the Venn diagram, right? There's where they meet in the middle. And I think that that makes a lot of sense in some cases. You know, before we get off the topic of your outlet, one of the things that struck me when I was talking with the founder of iDevices, when they released their in-wall products, was that they were specifically saying that, yeah, we're definitely going to be selling these to consumers, but our big market here is also builders, that the margins are better with builders and the uh, you know the way that they typically would interact as a company with a builder is obviously very different than selling to consumers. If you're doing direct sales, and I believe you do direct sales in addition to using retail outlets, then you're selling one-offs. And it's really nice to be able to instead say, okay, well, uh, Lennar Homes wants 30,000 in-wall outlets. Yep. Yeah, definitely the kinds of things we're targeting as well. So, you know, I, I think that that's an interesting opportunity too. And and I, I think of that, like I said, a little bit like a hybrid solution because it's not really, that's not really the same as saying, okay, well, you know, hey, Crestron or hey, Control 4, how about you consider using our product? It's entrusting a product that's going to be simple enough that a contractor can install it. Right. And any consumer in a home then is going to be able to figure out how to use it, perhaps with some basic starter instructions that may not necessarily come from you. Right. True. Yeah. I mean, that's something we're thinking about a lot that, you know, ultimately the end person using this is going to be a consumer, but how they get to that consumer might be different in a lot of different ways. Around the convergence to, I think kind of the other interesting trend in the, the Cedia space is, you know, we mentioned there's kind of the old school Cedia dealers, there's the DIY space, and then there's the people that are kind of embracing DIY a little bit and, and kind of taking on as the, the do it for me segment. Yeah. And this has been growing over the last couple of years. I remember a few years ago, I had a guy on Home On where this was his business was that he was installing, you know, he, he started out as a network guy and he would help people with, with their network and computer and stuff like that. And that ended up kind of flowing over into helping people install Sonos systems and helping people install ring doorbells or Instian uh setups in their home. And this is something that is, I think, only growing and, and good indicators of that is, are the companies like Amazon and Best Buy are trying to get in on it too. Right. And I think this is a good, 
you know, area where, you know, for anybody, it's you, you only have so much time. And if you've got money to throw at a problem, then some people will grad, gladly say, you know, I will gladly pay somebody to come in and take care of this for me. But it still gives you the flexibility that you can take care of it later. You can have some control, things like that. Yeah. And you can do it as one-offs. So the the beauty of this, people may ask, well, how's this really any different from an installer? And, and I want to get back to that in a little bit. But the difference here is that if you just want that one outlet and, or you want that that Sonos system or whatever else, and you don't want to deal with anything else, but you don't want to set it up yourself. You can have someone do that and just pay for that and not have to worry about the enormous cost of a big system installation. And then you can grow it over time. And like you said, you still have control over it, but you also have a vendor you can go back to and ask questions. A lot of these Service providers also offer kind of like a, I guess what I would call a tech retainer, where you pay them like a subscription fee per month. And for that, they'll provide you with so many hours of customer service or, you know, the models are different for each each company or each person. But this is a way of knowing that you're not just left with something that doesn't work for you two months later. Right. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with one of my neighbors recently who has a home theater in his basement. And, you know, he kind of complained that it, and he had had a, an installer do it for him. And he complained that it's all locked out. So if he wants to make small changes or simple things, you know, there's a system password on that and they didn't give him the system password. So <laughs> you need an official dealer or somebody to come in. And if it's something small, like, oh, I want to tweak the name of this or how this works or whatever, he's locked out from being able to do that. So he was kind of, what he was saying was like, yeah, I'm going to make some changes or kind of upgrade some things. And maybe I'm going to not put this stuff in the middle because I don't want to have to call a guy every time I want something tweaked. Right. Or to add a light bulb. Right. Right. I mean, so yeah, I totally understand that. Now, that's an area, I think, where some of these companies are starting to take a slightly different approach. When we were at CDL last year, we interviewed someone from Control 4, and they had introduced a logic engine and some configurability in the system where when they leave, they don't have to roll a truck out to your home every time you want to change the way a certain scene works because they're not going to know on day one. You have to live with it for a while to figure out if this is the right way for you. And if you want the ability to then tweak it yourself, they're actually entrusting you to make changes to the things that are already installed. They don't let you add a new light bulb on your own, but it does let you say, okay, well, what's the logic that impacts when this might go on, how should that change in a way that better suits the lifestyle after we've lived with it for a while? And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's economical for them. It lets consumers get what they want. 
and they still have the ability to kind of monitor it all and step in and and help out if you break something. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I guess the the real question that I would have is, you know, it when I and I'm asking this hypothetically because people have asked me this, right? How do I know which is the right way to go? And I have a hard time not I have a hard time not knowing how you answer that question. If if that makes any sense to you. Because for me it's obvious that I just want to do this stuff. I want to play with these things. I want to try them and and I feel like some of these things are easy enough that consumers could just do that if they're so inclined. On the other hand, if you have more money than time, and that is not a slur by any means. I mean, it, you you balance your priorities in your life the the way your means allow you. And if it's more beneficial for you to pay someone else to help figure it out and do it to set it all up for you, then I think you want to look at one of these do-it-for-me or professional installation solutions and between those two, I think it comes down to, do you want to mess with it later? Or do you want it to just be set up and let someone else deal with it whenever there's a problem? I, I think I have a good parallel example from earlier in life. And I'm probably going to take some content out of a, a question in the future. But here we go. So I used to build, I used to be a heavy PC guy, which people that know what an Apple head I am might have a hard time believing that. But <laughs> I used to build my own PCs. I literally took all my graduation money in at the end of high school and built my own gaming PC. So, you know, I was really into that. I loved kind of the process and getting into all that, being able to choose all the components, stuff like that. That was all well and great until you have a problem. Until you have like memory sticks that aren't pairing well or issues like that. And so, you know, I did that twice. I built two PCs. I had my fun, but I also had my share of huge headaches that came from some component is failing and you can't tell what it is. And you have to sort out the issue and you swapping things, replacing things. And the headaches that come from that. And then I ultimately said, I'm done with this altogether. <laughs> and I switched to Max and never looked back because I was tired of dealing with, with all this crap and all the headaches that came from it. So yep. I think there's a segment, that's all to say, there's a segment of people who, as much as they may want the control or things like that, they don't want to worry about it. They got bigger things to deal with in their life. They got, you know, they just want it to work. They just they just want somebody to call on if there's a problem, and you know they don't want to have to fiddle with it uh, and things like that. And so, and I totally get that. I've felt that way before of you know new smart home projects and things like that that have sat around for a while. It's like I do this all day long. I don't always want to go home at the end of the day and work on you know installing smart home stuff. Um, so I get a place for that. Uh, I just don't necessarily have the pocketbook always for it either. So, you know, I think that's great. And there's certainly people who, you know, make that equation and, and want to just pay somebody to get it done. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's funny. I've, 
I've done the same thing. I used to build my own home theater PCs and I just don't anymore. It's just not worth the effort. I can buy a $99 streaming box instead. It's so much easier. Yeah, exactly. So as far as that, um, that decision, I, th- I think you're right. I think it depends on uh, a lot of different factors. And I like that we have the do it for me and actual custom installer pro solutions out there between those. I think, like I said, the answer is how much control do you have, but also look at it this way. If you're the kind of person that's going to call an interior decorator or an architect when you're renovating your house, just call the professional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on the person, how technical they are, how much, you know, they're, you know, interested in getting into that kind of stuff, whether or not what kind of things they're interested in. Do they just want solutions or, you know, and, uh, and certainly their budget. So I think there's a lot of factors. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll take a quick break for our sponsors. Hey, and we've had sponsors lately. That's cool, right? Yes. Hopefully we'll have one in here. And then when we return, we will talk more about DIY. All right. So for our second segment, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into DIY. And, you know, I've always, and I say always because I've been doing this for literally decades. I've been playing with X10 devices since I was a kid, because yes, they've been around that long. And I have always been interested in kind of learning more about this stuff, making it work, seeing this market grow. And it's been fascinating for me watching it accelerate over the past few years. But admittedly, the market has not grown as quickly as all of the market analysts might have you believe. And so, you know, one of the things that I loved about when Mike Wolf was doing smart home market analysis is he had a very pragmatic view of what was going on and looked very specifically at the smart home space and not just as, oh, yeah, another technology trend that we're seeing in your local Best Buy and everything else. And so I think he had a more realistic view of things. But if you looked at what analysts were saying in terms of what the market size was going to be, how many people were, you know, how we were, it was like the jetpacks, right? We were all going to be wearing jetpacks by now. We were all going to have these smart homes that talked to us and the doors opened and they went, when the door opened and you know, it, it would, it, it would be just like living with the Jetsons. You and I talked about that in the past. Yeah. We never got that future. That has not happened. And I think there are many reasons, but in the past, one of the things um, that I think has hampered the technology was that it was, it, it was really geared toward tech heads, but recently it's become a whole lot more popularized. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's true about technology in general, we always expect that there are going to be these huge leaps and they're so rare. Um, You know, you could say something like, 
um, when the first smartphones came out. That was a pretty big leap. But, you know, since then, things are very evolutionary in that space. I think more often than not, things are just going to slowly step forward. Very rarely do we make these huge leaps. This industry had its iPhone moment, though, right? I mean, I would argue that that was the Amazon Echo. Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly brought a lot more eyeballs to the space, but I don't know that it, it was as big of a leap as, you know, the smartphone and that kind of stuff was. I I don't know. Well, so one of the things that I think you and I had talked about over the past couple months was an article that Stacey Higginbotham had written when she was in the process of kind of readying for her move. She just moved from Texas to Washington State. And in doing so, was kind of evaluating all the stuff that she had installed in her home and inventorying what she wanted to take with her and what she planned to use in her new home when she and her family uh, set up house again. And her conclusion in this was that, you know what? This stuff is probably just too complicated for most people. And I don't know that I want to go through the hassle of setting it all up again. That's kind of a controversial statement from someone who I consider a friend that covers this stuff. This is what she does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I get it. And I think I can understand why she may be a little jaded about things, but I don't necessarily agree that, that it's too complicated. I don't know that I disagree. Okay. I mean, I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing that's really interesting here is that in some ways, I feel like she was saying she, her article pissed a lot of people off. And I get that. But it, it made me scratch my head a little bit because there are aspects of this that are complicated that I feel like could be corrected. There are companies that are trying to correct. Apple is a company that's trying to correct it. You might argue that Amazon is a company that's trying to correct some of the problems. But I, I feel, and I, I hear from people all the time, the frustration that they have when they buy stuff and it doesn't just work. You know, we're, you and I are in the Apple ecosystem and we're used to things just working. And a lot of times this stuff doesn't just work. Right before we started, you and I were joking about all of the false positives or the failed attempts that we have talking with our voice assistants. Yeah. And general consumers aren't going to put up with that crap on a consistent basis. This is true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's room for improvement and there's definitely places to go up from here, but... I look at the overall adoption of Amazon's Echo devices, and to me, that's a positive indicator that things are still happening here, and this is going down market, and more people are adopting these kinds of technologies. And I think 
we're we're taking on some efforts where we're we're going to talk to more customers and and definitely talking about voice assistants is going to be part of that conversation and i'm really interested to learn where in the chain our devices are are purchased you know is it post voice assistant things like that and i'll definitely share some of those insights down the line you know the interpretation i get is that you know in some cases people buy voice assistants and then go looking in terms of what else can i do here yep and that's where they arrive at at smart home stuff yeah i i think that that is true although i feel like we are seeing we i think it's both ways right i, I like i think we're seeing Voice assistants drive smart home a little bit, but at the same time, I feel like we're starting to see smart home drive voice assistants. Like, oh, you know, I have these devices that I can control, but I don't want to have to pull an app out every time. Why can't I just talk to it? Oh, well, turns out you can. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably more the angle many of us early adopters came at it from was, you know, we were into these technologies well before the voice stuff was mature. And I know that's kind of where where my my path has gone. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, I would expect it's the other way around. So I, I want to, you know, I'm trying to get inside the head of Adam a little bit. And when when you're saying that you don't agree with this, I I can I can kind of see that just from the approach that you and your company have taken toward this technology. Let's use your smart outlet as an example. Your smart outlet, it's obvious what it is, right? Like if I buy a module from Instian or from SmartThings or whatever, it's not entirely obvious what those things are just by looking at them. Just You just look at your product and you can tell what it is. Oh, this goes over an outlet. Oh, look, it has a charger on it. Oh, look, it has buttons. Those must control the, the thing. Oh, look, it has a Wi-Fi symbol on it. I bet I can control the outlets through what... I mean, it's just inherently obvious what your product does. And I feel like a lot of stuff that is out there isn't designed that way, isn't built with that intent. Oh, and by the way, your first your first ecosystem that you worked with was Apple's ecosystem, the one designed to try and make this easier for everybody. So you're approaching this from the perspective of let's make it dead simple from the beginning. And I don't feel like a lot of companies are. Yeah. I mean, that's always been one of our kind of tenets in our, in our product design is we're trying to make this as simple as possible. And Everything, every problem we look at, every angle of this, we're we're trying to make it as simple as you can and take the complexity out of it, make it so the users don't have to make a ton of decisions or, you know, learn a bunch of new concepts and things like that. And so that's why things like uh, integrating with HomeKit have been uh, something we, we go after. You know, there's plenty of people who have said, you know, no thanks, I'm not going to do that. It's too complicated. It takes too much time, whatever. But, you know, I feel like there's there's a strong value for, for the user and what, what they bring to the table in that. Well, and as it's evolved, it's even become easier and easier. It's It's literally kind of 
tap and use these days with these products, particularly if they have the um, the RFC identification uh, or authentication built in. It's just like the 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 way that Apple has approached the implementation or the provisioning of these devices, just that word, like obviously no, well, at least I don't think any smart home product manufacturer is using the word provision. They shouldn't be, but that's what you're doing, right? Like you're provisioning something. That's a complicated concept. Right. And I think that's an inherent hurdle that many products have out of the box. I have to remind my engineers that we're not allowed to use the word provisioning with users. So I, I, I'm always that guy that, I, you know, I'll see a first draft, a documentation or a screen or something like that. And I'm like, provisioning is not a word that users use. Right. So, you know, this is how I connected to my Wi-Fi or, you know, it, it's, it's all the stuff like that. You, you have to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. And, you know, I think to our point of stuff earlier, one of the things that differentiates some of these technologies is the complexity of it. And I almost feel like the professional market likes complex technologies because it keeps them in business. And so that's almost been, uh, maybe that's a reason for some of their fear of, of some of this stuff is like, oh, it's not complex enough. There's not a place for me to take care of these things where when it's complex, I can, I bring, bring value because I understand these complex technologies. I don't, I, you know, my personal opinion is those two things don't have to coexist. There's no reason to make it overly complex. We can still have a product that's easy for anybody to use and have address all those markets. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. All right. Well, let me stoke the fire a little bit more because after Stacy's piece, then Charlie Kindle, also a voice in the industry, formerly the guy who ran the Amazon Echo, I'm not going to say the name of her, program at Amazon, now working for Control 4, a custom solution pro- uh, provider, he kind of jumped on the bandwagon. He's like, right, I've been saying all along, this is the big, the, the big light bulb moment that I had last year. It's too hard. Just call an installer. We'll take care of it for you. Yeah. I, I had the pleasure of hearing Charlie speak at uh, Connections, Parks Connections, um, this past year. And he got up in front of a, a room full of smart home manufacturers, many who are very focused on the DIY market, and basically said, this is not the way. And, you know, Control 4 is the way. So I have a lot of respect for the guy. I think he's a smart man. I think he is uh, doing a great stuff at, at Control 4. But he and I do not see eye to eye when it comes to the future of this industry. Well, I mean, he's now working in the pro space. He has an agenda. Yeah. That's not bad. But he's he's approaching it from a different perspective. Now, you might argue that in his home, where he has admittedly stated that in Amazon, in the Amazon app, he had over 200 nodes. One might argue that that's a design flaw of the product that he used to manage. Cause I have that problem too. And I know I don't have as many nodes as really show up there, but anyway, 
the uh, when you have that many things in your home, yeah, maybe it is time to start thinking about a professional system. The reality is that most people have a dozen or fewer devices that are connected in their home. Most people, not not gearheads like you and me, but uh, you know, your average consumer is going to have fewer than a dozen connected home devices. Yeah, and I think the thing that I took the most issue with the message that that he was bringing was that he seemed to think that they were the solution for everybody. And to me, I don't feel like that kind of stuff can go down market enough to address, you know, the every person that has an echo and wants to change lights. I, I, I don't see it today. And, and maybe that'll change over time and they will, will come out with products that uh, will address things differently. But I think when you need to roll a truck that comes at a certain price point, and I don't see that price point addressing the mass market today. No, I agree with that. Now, I think that he and others point out that you can get into Control 4 for as little as about 1000 or $1,200. That's great. But like I said, that's going to be a really limited system, right? That's a base system. It has the ability to maybe include a controller, control some lights, and uh, perhaps your music and stuff like that. But that isn't what most people are looking for if they're looking for a professional installed system. They're usually going bigger than that. At least that's been my experience talking with folks. If I were the manufacturers in that room, I would see that as a call to action. Because I think what he's highlighting is what we were talking about earlier. There are definite problems in the DIY space. We have, and and I enumerated some of these that I think is worth just kind of listing through here. We, we have the whole issue of hubs or no hubs. Some devices need hubs. Some devices don't need hubs. That's enormously confusing for people. Then you have devices that need a bridge. Not really a hub because it's not connecting a whole bunch of external things, but it needs to bridge the radio technology that's in your device to the internet or some other thing. And that's also confusing. You have all these different radio protocols, all these different standards. And I use standards with a small s because there aren't really mandated standards with a big S that any body manages as part of, say, you know, a multinational uh, organization, government kind of thing, kind of like you have with North American electrical standards and stuff like that. So it's it's been all over the place and people develop the technology that they think is going to be better than what's already out there if that's what's driving them. You also and as a result, you end up with a bunch of stuff that's incompatible. Right. So, you know, there's that side of the technology. Then there's just retail. Retail has been a disaster. Retailers do not know how to sell this stuff. They're getting better. You see innovative companies like Beta doing really cool stuff and turning retail on its side a little bit. You have online stepping in and trying to help people understand. Apple's trying to do retail differently, and and they're trying to do that with smart home too. But for the most part, 
I feel like companies have done a really bad job of selling smart home products. And, you know, how can we be surprised? Just go to the light bulb aisle in your local big box home store and try and pick out a freaking light bulb. The industry has done such a poor job of educating consumers about different lighting types or even colors. How could we have expected that similar men, some of the same manufacturers, in fact, would then do a good job of educating consumers and helping retailers sell products to consumers that are even more complicated? So these are things that the industry needs to work on. The All of the players in the stack need to figure out how to solve these problems, I think, before we get past this hurdle of just people buying things because they're cool and then get to a point where people are adding things to their homes that they believe add value to their lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, we definitely have focused on this too. And this is a the cool versus value thing comes up all the time in our, in our product discussions. It's like when we're adding features, we want to solve a problem for somebody. We want to add value for somebody. You can't just do something because it, it adds a new, you know, cool feature bullet you can throw on there that that'll help sell a certain audience, but that's your early adopters and things like that. And if you want to go deeper in the market and appeal to more people, you have to bring value and solve people's problems. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Because otherwise, we're never going to get that Jetsons home. And I totally want one of those. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we leave that there? Normally, at this time, we would have a question from a listener, but we don't have one for this episode. So we'll just skip that. And if you have a smart home question for us, you can send it our way on Twitter using the hashtag ask the smart home show or ask smart home show rather. And we'll pick from those to include in our show. All right, Richard, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet? Over at the digital media zone. That's the digital media zone.com where I host home on and entertainment 2.0. How about you? Uh, you can find everything my company's doing at connectsense.com and stay tuned because, as I mentioned, we got some new stuff coming out in the coming months and uh, we'll probably go into that some more in some future episodes. And then, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice. And, of course, the Smart Home Show is a part of technology.fm, which is a collection of tech focused podcasts, including Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and Richard's Show, Home On. Uh, and of course, you can find this show, all of its episodes, notes, all of that on our domain, which is fairly new, at smarthome.fm. And you can find this show in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and everywhere else that you find podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you go into wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a review or uh, even just tell a friend about the show. So thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.